Welcome in to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We're continuing our Team Top 10 Prospects series today with the Cleveland Guardians. We're going to look at the promise of Daniel Espino, what has allowed Gavin Williams to become one of the best pitching prospects in baseball, and updates on George Valera and Brian Rocchio, two very, very prominent international signings. To do all that, I'm joined by Teddy Cahill. Teddy, good to have you on. Yeah, it's uh, we're getting close to spring training. It's always a fun time. Yeah, definitely. Excitement is in the air. College baseball season is about to start. Spring training is about to start. We're about a month away from the start of the World Baseball Classic. So definitely can feel baseball in the air. Teddy, in the first year as the Guardians, uh, Cleveland certainly had a a very, very good year. We talked about it on the podcast last year in 2021. uh, They went 80 and 82. It was their first losing season since 2012. And there are some questions of, okay, you know, how good is this team going to be? They've traded Francisco Lindor. They've dropped below 500. What's next? They bounced back in a big way last year. Got some really, really, really nice contributions from a lot of young big leaguers who were former top 100 prospects while kind of blossomed at the same time. Ahmed Rosario, Andres Jimenez, Josh Naylor to a degree, Tristan McKenzie. Uh, really helped them just kind of ascend to uh, where they were previously at the top of the division. I, I do feel like the outlook looks markedly different now than it did this time a year ago. How do you assess the state of this organization? Because things from the outside looking in are certainly looking up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's strong. I'm pretty sure I said it was strong a year ago. Like the 2021 season was was certainly a downturn and they finished under 500 and everything. But, you know, they're all the positive signs that this organization has had for, for years, like, like they, they remain there. They're still building a really strong farm system. They're still really good at developing young talent and graduating it to the big leagues. They still have a really good pitching staff. They still have the same front office in place by and large. Every once in a while, somebody gets hired away, but mostly it's the same guys running the show and it's Terry Francona managing them. I mean, like this is all the sign of one of the most stable, successful franchises in the big leagues. I mean, it hasn't broken through for a world series or, you know, they haven't even gone back to the world series since losing to the Cubs. But I mean, they are, consistent they are always a playoff contender and you know i they are the best team in the al central and they have been for a few years now yeah one of the things that really jumps out to me that i think is super promising is obviously this franchise has been excellent at developing pitching for a very long time now but we talked about in the past what they did was they acquired young pitchers and trades either as prospects or young big leaguers and made them better Corey Kluber, Trevor Bauer, Mike Clevenger, Carlos Carrasco. None of these guys were truly homegrown. They were acquired, but then they got markedly better under the, uh, well, at the time, the Indians, now the Guardians instruction. Um, And they've maintained their really good pitching development now with homegrown guys, Shane Bieber, Tristan McKenzie, et cetera. But it seems like they've applied that formula of acquiring young big leaguers in trades and making them better now on the position player side as well. I talked about Jimenez, Rosario, Naylor. Um, all guys that came over in trades and all had top 100 pedigree, but look, they were young, they needed time and and they were able to blossom with Cleveland. It seems like they've unlocked that side of it now too. So if you have good pitching development, you can do it on the position player side too. It's a really good place to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that one thing that they're able to do is they've always been very good at scouting amateurs. And now, I mean, that, that that's paying off in terms of finding 
talent within pro ball already. Um, I, the, the player development piece is strong in the organization really from top to bottom, like whether we're talking about somebody in the complex league or we're talking about a guy in the big leagues, they are, have shown that they know how to get them better. And, you know, I, I think that obviously they're looking for certain traits and they feel like they can bring certain traits out of players. I, I'm sure every organization feels like they can do that, but I, they're they're very good at it and they've been very successful at, you know, look, they, they are what they are. They're, they're a, a, a team that's never going to have a top five payroll in the sport. Like the 90s are gone, but so they know they have to trade players and they have to hit on the returns and they're doing a very good job at, at hitting on the returns, even when sometimes the initial like thought about what they got in return for a player is like, well, how exciting is that really, you know, give it a year. And all of a sudden, you know, Cal Quantrill is one of your better players or you produce an all-star out of the Francisco Lindor trade. You know, th- these things, they, they don't always seem obvious in the moment. They don't always show up in, in the way we write up trades or in the way they get talked about in, in the moment that it happens. But within a year or two, they, they have shown that, you know, the, they are successful at getting those players to where they need to be. I think the ultimate example of that is when they traded Corey Kluber and got Emmanuel Classe back at the time. It was like, what, why would they trade Corey Kluber for this package? It's not nearly enough. And, you know, Kluber as great of a pitcher as he was certainly fell off a little bit. And Classe has emerged as arguably the best closer in the American league. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and there, there are tons of those and uh, it, it just seems like every, every time, but yeah, I remember that trade and, you know, Kluber was pretty clearly done in Cleveland and, potentially done overall and that's kind of what it's proved to be but you know Emmanuel Classe like just this hard throwing reliever like what is what is that even going to be and yeah like you said okay like it's the best closer in the league potentially yeah no again this is an organization in a good place and, and with that they have a really good young core of talent in the big leagues and they have a really good farm system as well I want to dive into that with you Daniel Espino and Gavin Williams have been two of the most impressive pitching prospects in baseball over the last year or two, just in terms of pure stuff. Uh, both of them are absolutely electric. Daniel Spino only made four starts last year. He had a knee injury. What ultimately put him at number one over Gavin Williams in the system? Because in their top 100, they're very close together. Both are considered potential frontline starters. How narrow was the edge and, and ultimately what went into that decision? Yeah, I mean, So it's weird that this guy who hasn't pitched since I think it's May, uh, is the number one prospect, right? Like that, that is abnormal, especially when Gavin Williams, a first round pick with significant pedigree, you know, comes out and has a really strong debut season like he did and gets into the upper minors. But what Espino has going for him over Gavin Williams is number one, his age. Um, Gavin Williams is uh, like three or four years older than Daniel Espino. Uh, and that's not insignificant because they're pitching at the same level now. And what Daniel Espino did a year ago now, almost like in spring training and at the start of the season was just so, so loud. Like at his peak, he is exceptional. Um, The injury also wasn't like one that you are really concerned about moving forward. Like he didn't have shoulder surgery. Uh, So, you know, there there are reasons to, to believe that he'll be able to recapture that peak relatively easily. And if he does that, 
Like, I think it's pretty clear why he's better than Gavin Williams. But right now, if you wanted to say like, well, you know, we haven't seen Espino pitch in months and uh, here Gavin Williams is, and he'll probably be big league ready before Daniel Espino at this point. Like I, I would understand it, but I think if you just take the long view and with pitching prospects, like I, we, we went over, we went through this with Tristan McKenzie, like been through this with many pitching prospects across the game. Like, they don't have a linear path. People want them to have a linear path. They don't. <laughs> and uh, you just, you have to stick with them through the downs. Like if you don't stick with Lucas Giolito through the downs, you wind up trading. And I'm not saying the Nats shouldn't have made that trade, but you wind up trading like an all-star, uh, you know, Tristan McKenzie like went through his down and like comes out and is a very reliable big league pitcher at this point. Like these guys have to be allowed to, to do that. And, you know, so I, I guess in the, I'm taking a bit of a longer view in putting Espino there, uh, just in terms of the age and knowing what he's capable of. Yeah, I mean, the types of reviews that we were getting on him, even just in spring training, were, were jaw-dropping. Like, wait, what did you just say? I mean, people comparing him to the best pitchers in the sport. Obviously, a big part of that is staying on the mound. And, and through no fault of his own, because 2020, the season was canceled, um, he hasn't had the opportunity to throw 100 innings in a season yet. He threw 91 and two-thirds in 2021, which is perfectly right in the range for a, a high school draftee in his first full season. Uh, just didn't get the chance in 2022 to build on it. What are going to be the big things to watch for him in 2023? Is it simply just durability and staying on the mound? Yeah, I think it's entirely just get on the mound. And the the thing that you mentioned there with the, the innings count, I, like I think that's a real concern and why I think he probably won't be big league ready this year because just how many innings can you put on his arm at this point? And maybe they would bring him up and consider him out of the bullpen in a role like that or something. But I, I don't, I just don't see how he could be ready to go be a member of, of a big league rotation. He needs reps just taking the ball every five days and accumulating enough innings so that in 2024 he can be ready to do that so i mean like yeah i get excited if he's back to his peak in terms of you know again in spring training we hear great things about him or some random june start you hear all about how his velo is exceptional and and he was snapping off breaking balls and all the rest of it but like i think for him it's really just get used to being in a routine get used to being in a routine against upper level hitters and show that in a year you you can do this at the highest level. Teddy, Gavin Williams was someone who was considered to have some of the best pure stuff of any pitcher in the 2021 draft, but concerns about his control are the reason he fell to the 23rd pick. And I think it needs to be noted that his final season at East Carolina, he actually showed pretty good control. Most of the, the bad walk numbers were in his previous years, you know, his freshman, sophomore, and then the shortened 2020 season when he only pitched three innings. He gets into the Cleveland system, first full season, zips right up to Akron, shows some of the best stuff in the minors. And importantly, the strikeout to walk was really, really good. The control was perfectly fine. A walk uh, only about three per nine. What did the Guardians do here? Because in some ways he's different than their typical profile where they take guys with really good command and help their stuff get better. This was a pure stuff guy who they helped his control and command get better. Yeah, so I understand why any team would have had concerns about him going into the draft because for like three years at ECU, we had heard like, just watch for Gavin Williams, like that big arm, like he was a, he was a known player coming out of high school. 
and he just wasn't able to put it together. And then finally in 2021, he does. And coming into the year, he wasn't supposed to be like this first round pick ace. Like he was not a preseason All-American. It was not like it, it, all of this was unexpected. So the the track record just was not there. And you really had to believe that what he was doing in 2021 was sustainable and that you could help him do that. So I really think the Guardians just helped him continue to build on that. And look, he's a big power right-hander. Like those guys often struggle with control and the minors are littered with guys like him who just never figured it out, but he did get it figured out. And that started at ECU. The guardians have helped him maintain it and helped him do it at maybe a higher level, but his, his work really, really started in college. And, um, you know, he, he went from being a guy who just was like, okay, it's a big arm, but is he ever going to figure out how to like hone this stuff? He finally did. And, and it took him into the first round and now is, has him pretty much on the doorstep of the big leagues. Yeah, you mentioned he's a big boy. Six, six, two fifty five is what he's listed at. Um, what's the potential outcome here? I mean, how good can he be? I mean, I don't like putting ceilings on any of the Guardians pitchers because <laughs> like, I mean, I, I used to talk when Shane Bieber was in the minors. I was like, that dude's an ace. And like, I was half joking, but like, I don't know. That's also kind of a reminder because nobody saw that coming at all. Like, I, I, I refuse to put a ceiling on any of the Guardians pitchers. They all could be aces, frankly. That's very true. I, I still go back and look at there's nothing in Corey Kluber's minor league performance where you'd say, yep, this guy's going to be a two-time Cy Young Award winner, even AAA, and there you have it. So that's that's probably a wise course of action, not putting ceilings on Guardians pitchers, because as soon as you do, they'll probably exceed them. Um, nonetheless, these are two very, very talented pitching prospects, both in the, the top 25 of the top 100, and two guys that certainly have a lot of potential, and, and you certainly like the player development system they're in in terms of their ability to fulfill it. Teddy, following these two pitchers, who, who I feel like it's fair to say were the clear-cut numbers one and two in the system, you have a trio of position players who have all been fairly well-known in terms of their amateur pedigree. Um, Bo Naylor, obviously being Josh Naylor's little brother, one of the top players in Canada, and a very highly regarded draft pick. George Valera and Brian Rocchio were two celebrated international signings. How did you kind of stack this group up? Because from the outside looking in again, it seems like they're kind of fluid. Was there a clear number three? Take us through that process. No, uh, almost completely fluid. I think if you, you know, I, I actually, I probably do have access to this. I, I don't even know it. But somewhere in the BA, <laughs> like uh, in our database, I bet there are like all of your top 100s. And I bet everyone ordered these guys a little bit differently or they would have if they didn't know how I had ordered them on the 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 top 10 list. I, like. If, do you want a catcher? Like, do, do you like the positional like uh, value of a catcher? I do. So, like, that's probably why Bo Naylor's is number one here. I mean, I can make a better case for that, I guess. But like, it kind of comes down to that for me. Like, I I think that if you have a dude who can play catcher and Bo Naylor absolutely can catch and also is going to hit the way he has hit, like, I don't know. Like that that seems really valuable to me. But I also know that some people. Uh, love what George Valera is bringing in terms of just being an impact bat. And so just because he plays corner outfield, does that, you know, it, he, he can be such an impactful hitter that some people would have him at three. And some people would look at Rokio and be like, well, 
okay, like, yeah, I understand that catcher's valuable, but you know what else is really valuable? Like a potential premium defensive shortstop that also has premium bat-to-ball skills. I, I think it's really just a matter of, like, what do you like here? Because all three of these guys are really good and approximately at the same level of development in terms of how close they are to the big leagues. There's just not a whole lot that, that's separating them, at least in my eyes. Yeah, I want to go back to Naylor as a hitter. Um, well, I, first and foremost, I think it's interesting how we, we talked about this on the Top 100 podcast that evaluating amateur catchers can be difficult. And I remember at the time, there were some questions about will Bo Naylor be a catcher? And pretty much as soon as he got into pro balls, like, yeah, this guy's going to be a catcher. There's no question. The bat had had lagged a little bit. You know, Lake County in, in his first season, it was okay, but it wasn't great. He really, really struggled with a very aggressive jump to Akron in 2021 coming out of the pandemic, hit a buck 89 with a 280 on base percentage, um, just was not ready for the level. Came back to Akron this year, hit much better there, got to Columbus, hit better there. What is unlocked in him offensively? Because this was far and away his best offensive season, and he did it at the highest levels of the minors. Yeah, so I think actually it's not anything that he unlocked. It's what happened last year. The the and by last year I mean twenty twenty one. That that's the confusing thing. It's not that he can hit during twenty twenty. And like I know if you go to his his page, like there's no evidence of this because you know they didn't keep stats at alternate sites. But the 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 reports on him at the alternate site were like that he was the best hitter there, and at that time he's like twenty and. You know, so I, that that was that was loud. I also think that you're asking an awful lot like of he has been aggressively pushed every single time. He was a 19 year old catching every day in the Midwest League. Uh, that just doesn't really happen much. So, OK, yeah, it's only a 734 OPS, but he also did hit like 40 extra base. Like, like he had like 40 extra base hits. Um that it was like 40% of his hits were extra base hits that year. So he's always had it in him. What happened in 21 is, is really the confusing thing to me. And I kind of just take that to be that he, you know, the 2020, everybody reacted differently to that. And now he was pushed to double a jumping over high a completely. And, you know, it, it, it's a difficult thing catching. So he had a bad year offensively, but he was able to get back to doing what he does um did a lot better job at you know controlling the strike zone um it's not really that he decreased his his uh strikeout rate as much as that he did a better job being patient and and finding his pitches and he took a lot more walks but really i just feel like it was a lot of him getting back to who he is rather than who he was in 2021 yeah, you look at this Guardians lineup, and catcher is one of the spots where you know they could use some help. I mean, Austin Hedges is a great defender, but he's he's been one of the worst hitters in the major leagues really since he debuted. Um, for a playoff team, you certainly want need more. We saw Naylor make his major league debut briefly last year. What's the timeline for him to take over as as the Guardians' everyday catcher here? Uh, I mean, I, I think that well, so the Guardians are always going to have. A rotation behind the plate at some level that they haven't had like a solo like catcher in quite some time so i i don't really anticipate that changing even with him uh i i think that he's a guy that can go and compete this year um we're getting kind of late for them to to go and um 
you know, find a, a new solution. So I guess it's Mike Zanino is, is going to lead the way and maybe, uh, maybe Bo Naylor has a chance at breaking with the team, but I think he probably goes back down to the minors to start the season. And then you'll see him at some point in the summer. And then it'll kind of depend on like, how does he do? How does Zanino do? And, and then they'll look at, at 2024. Yeah, it's a good call. You're, you're going to have so much happen this offseason. I completely forgot Mike Zanino is now a guardian. But again, he's coming off here where he hit you know 148 in limited time. And he's also a career 200 hitter. So you certainly well, want to get And, and it's, he's a catcher that has had some injury issues because they all have. So like, yeah. what, what exactly is Mike Zanino going to do this year? They're banking on him, bouncing back. But, um, you know, I, all of that's going to determine the timeline here. And, and frankly, Bo Naylor is going to determine the timeline. If he, he rakes at Columbus when he's down there for a month or two, like they're going to accelerate it, I'm sure. Absolutely. All right, Teddy. Well, we've talked about the top five prospects in this top 10, but this is one of the deepest systems in baseball with a lot of talent below it. I want to look at some of those guys here with you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll dive right in. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, we are back breaking down the Cleveland Guardians farm system. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside Teddy Cahill. All right, Teddy, we talked about the five guys at the top of this top 10, all of whom are in the top 100. But the Guardians are one of the teams that have top 100 prospects, even in the back half of their top 10. Talked about their ability to take pitchers who might not throw super hard, but get the most from them. And there's two pitchers here that really fit that mold to a T, Logan Allen, a lefty, and, and especially Tanner Bibby, the righty. I actually want to talk about Bibby. I saw him at Fullerton, and look, he was your typical Fullerton right-hander. Command, feel, low 90s, not huge stuff. Very much in that Noah Ramirez, Thomas Eshelman kind of grouping. He, he flashed the ability to throw a little harder, but uh, you know, Colton Eastman, Connor Siebold, like that kind of guy. And I remember doing my annual calls for my annual spring training story about, hey, who are some guys who are popping up? And I had a scout tell me, Tanner Bibby's out here pumping 98. I was like, wait. Tanner Bibby's doing what? It's like, yeah, he's pumping 98. I was like, are we talking about the same guy? And lo and behold, we were. Um, you know, the buzz was really, really starting in spring training last year. He carried it throughout the season and turned himself from a guy that was seen as, you know, maybe a potential fifth starter swingman type to now one of the best pitching prospects in baseball. Um, what 
kind of unlocked all this in Tanner Vivian and what's his outlook now? Man, that is like the billion dollar question, right? Like if, <laughs> if, if I could answer that, like I would not be talking to you right now. Or if I was like, I would be like telling you, well, I have proprietary data and secrets. And so I can't, I can't explain this for you. Um, they are just really good at finding, like they, they have a model of guys that they think that they can look at and then get you more velocity because they're very confident that they can train that uh, and they can clearly and that they can help you unlock your like the, the refinements you need to make to your pitches to execute them to to your peak but the main thing is they're finding guys that have pitch ability that have control that can throw harder because you do have to be able to throw harder like for everyone that's like well it's just about control and Craig it's Maddox cool. through 89 like it's not that's nonsense like you have right. to throw hard yeah. and um you know so he he they got his velocity up and he just absolutely took off he hasn't lost his pitch ability um and this is not a guy like you're talking about you know, you do the draft in, in California and like, you know, you remember what he was at Fullerton. Like I never, while he was at Fullerton thought about like, Oh, they've really got a dude out here at Fullerton. Like it was like, Oh, well he's just like every other Fullerton Friday night guy that they've had for the last half dozen years. Like they're all good. None of them is like lighting the world on fire, but here he is. And, and he's, uh, he's made a huge jump and look, I mean, if he had more pedigree, he'd be higher on this list. Some of this is just like us trying to catch up and us like waiting for him to turn into a pumpkin or something. But like, <laughs> I don't think it's happening. And like, is that on me for not ranking him higher? Like maybe, but also like, that's just how good the system is. But he's, uh, it, it's really the developmental story of the year, at least in the organization and maybe beyond. Yeah, I mean, just to put in perspective, his final year at Fullerton, he struck out 67 batters in 89 and two-thirds innings. Now, he was effective, but this was every bit a, a pitchability right-hander. I mean, again, this guy did not miss a lot of bats, really, at, at any point in his college career. Uh, he averaged 7.8 Ks per nine in four seasons at Fullerton. Again, that final year, his draft year, struck out 6.7 per nine. There was nothing here to suggest big swing and miss stuff. It was pitchability. It was command. Like you said, all these other Fulton right-handers and a lot of whom have gotten to the majors, but again, you know, the stealings have been limited. Noe Ramirez, Tom Eshelman, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, this, this seems like the most remarkable of all, because at least, you know, Shane Bieber had a little more, um, you know, swing and miss stuff when he was at, at Santa Barbara and we'll see what Tanner Bibby is. I'm certainly not going to say he's a Cy Young award winner, but um, it, this really is remarkable. And I, I think of all the Guardians pitching development successes, this is the one that seems the most shocking to me to, to get Tanner Bibby pumping 98 and going from 6.7 strikeouts per nine in college to 11.3 per nine up and up to double A in his first full season. I mean, just jaw dropping. <laughs> I mean, it is because most of the other guys, like you're going to talk about how like Logan Allen, like they did a good job with that. Well, Logan Allen was the Gatorade player of the year has seen in Florida his senior year. Like Logan Allen has always been known. He he just is small. And so like he he doesn't throw as hard or whatever. Like, OK, but he has always been a guy. Shane Bieber, like pitched in the College World Series. I think he was an All-American that year, like. They they just weren't necessarily supposed to become pro dudes. They were they were dudes as amateurs. Like 
this Tanner, Tanner Bibby is not that guy. And, um, you know, to, to pitch at Fullerton, like, obviously you have to be good on some level, but again, he, he was never, uh, a, a USA baseball guy. He, he just, he's not that guy. And, and now he's, again, he's a top 100 prospect and a guy you might see in the big leagues this season. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, remarkable story. And, and again, certainly going to be one of the guys I'm watching the most here in 2023 to see if he can keep it up, but there's a lot of faith he can. Um, good athlete, good command, good pitch ability. And you add, I mean, six or seven miles an hour to his stuff. And this is what you get. It really is impressive all around. Teddy, I do want to ask about their first round pick last year, Chase DeLauder. Uh, he was someone that coming into the year, there was some thought that he could be a top 10 pick. Struggled a little bit early against some 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 of the better pitchers he was going to face being a mid-major guy. Uh, fell into uh, the middle of the first round where, where the Guardians scooped him up. What are your thoughts on Chase DeLauder, and, and how did you go about fitting him into this top 10? Because he can be polarizing at times. Yeah, very complicated. Um, and the problem with Chase DeLauder is not that he doesn't have any tools or that he's a mid-major guy. Like I, I don't really care about his performance in February because a lot of guys don't perform in February. What he did on the Cape Cod League the year before really should answer questions about how he does against high-level arms. But what he hasn't done is just played a lot of baseball and it's not super duper his fault. Like 2020 happened for everyone. And then in 2021, James Madison played a very limited schedule, even by college baseball terms for 2021. And then in 2022, he breaks his foot and misses half the season. Um, So he just hasn't played a ton. And also he was a two-way player at one point. Uh, Like that's how he came to JMU. So there was time that he was spending, like trying to develop as a pitcher and and not focusing on the hitting. So like, he's just a lot more raw than you would expect a first round college outfielder to be. Um, The tools are all there. I I just, I don't know what the developmental timeline is going to be because it's possible that he gets around pro coaching and stays healthy this year. And you know, obviously he's no longer pitching, hasn't been pitching for like more than a year now, but like all of that means that maybe he can take off, but also maybe like this is going to be the, you know, it's a big jump to go from college to to pros for anyone. And then he effectively in, in college, he got like one year's worth of at-bats. Like if you, if you look at what a guy who played in the SEC and like went to super regionals did, like that however many at-bats Chase Delauder got, and I don't have it in front of me, it's like 250 or 260 throughout his career. 256. So he had he yeah. played 66 games in three years at James Madison. That's one season for a team that just goes to like Super Regionals or Omaha. One season. And that's what he had for three years at JMU. And like you can add in, like, look, the Cape numbers are great. He did a great job on the Cape. But it's just like he does not have the same level of reps under his belt that almost any other college player coming out, especially a first round pick does. Yeah, and like one thing, too, we've seen the Guardians do is is pick players who are young for their draft class. Um, that's something that they value a lot. And he didn't turn 21 until October of this year. So he's very young. So you mentioned he's very young. He's very raw mid-major who didn't play a lot. So there's a lot of tools and, and it could pay off, but it does seem like at least on paper, this is going to be more of a, a longer development path. than, like you said, your, your typical college 16th overall pick. 
Yeah, and you know they they obviously are an organization that's equipped to do that kind of development. Like I I don't mean this to like take away from who DeWater is as a player. I just mean to like don't expect this first round pick to like shoot through the big leagues. He pro or shoot through the minor leagues to the big leagues. He's probably going to need a little bit of time to work through some stuff. Absolutely. Teddy, this is one of the deepest systems in baseball. We've talked about it. There's a lot of guys in the teens that would rank in the top 10 for a lot of other organizations. Who are some of the guys outside the top 10 that you've kind of tabbed as sleepers and think could be in the top 10 this time next year? Oh man, that is uh that is a great question. And, you know, I, uh, I know a lot of people probably have like caught on to John Kenzie Noel in the last couple of years. I mean, he's got the best power in the system and it's just a weird profile. Like, I don't, I don't know that he's going to be a top 10 prospect for them, but that's a guy that I'm like endlessly fascinated by, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, so they have some exciting players like that. And, you know, you, you look through their, their draft history and they're, they're, they're full of, you know, intriguing guys, but you know, you, you kind of have to go to their international, uh, you, you can't ignore what they're doing on the international front, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, um, you know, all of those players, I, I feel like are one season away from, from breaking out kind of like what Angel Martinez did. Um, and then, you know, they've added so many pitching prospects in recent years. Um, and, and so is there trying to say anyone's going to be like, what, what what Tanner Beebe did this year is is entirely too much but you know we we didn't talk about Justin Campbell because he's not in the top 10 but like that was a guy who was a potential first round pick and he was 37th overall and uh you know they get a couple graduations and all of a sudden Justin Campbell's in the top 10 and like who knows what he could pull off uh this year in terms of of, of making a jump so uh you know they, they have a lot of like you said it's one of the deepest systems it's one of the best systems in the minors. So well outside the top 10, you're going to find interesting players. One guy who was a big name when he was drafted, um, but has not been able to stay on the mound is Ethan Hankins. What's the latest on him and his general update? Yeah, I don't have a great update on Ethan Hankins. Like he just hasn't, hasn't been active, you know, and even at this point, once he returns to activity, what, what's that going to look like? As I recall, he was rule five eligible this year when undrafted, uh, so, I mean, to me, that's kind of like, obviously, I don't know how anyone would take him, but that is an indication of what the industry has on him right now is that somebody with that pedigree is not somebody they're thinking about. Yeah, he uh, came back through one inning last year. He's done one inning since 2019. So sort of you know, up in the air what his future holds. Teddy, again, this is a really, really good team in the major leagues. This is a really, really good farm system. Uh, this is an organization that seems primed to, to remain atop the AL Central for the foreseeable future. As we wrap up here, I mean, just what, what are your overall thoughts on, on the Guardians and what comes next? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess now what comes next is is you have a an organization that has a, a farm system that's as good as any any of the majors or, or any, any out there, I would guess. Um, how do you now convert that into, into wins? Um, we've been talking about the coming like infield log jam for years. Uh, it, I think it's actually here now. Like, I, I think it's finally arrived. Um, and if it hasn't arrived this year, it will arrive next year. And they're going to have to make some difficult decisions about what they do in the middle of the infield. So that continues to be something I'm interested in. Do they trade some of these players 
for big league help at some point this year, or do they just kind of keep on keeping on and let them all work it out on the field? Um, I don't know, but like to me that 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 is one of the more interesting things here as this wave, and especially the the trio of Naylor, Valera, and Rocchio like crests into the big leagues. How do they? How do you handle everything? Because you already have really talented players you know, that you would write into an opening day lineup, let alone somebody like Tyler Freeman or Gabriel Arias, who's like a, theoretically a level above those guys. But um, how, how you manage all of that, how you matriculate these guys from high level prospects into being major leaguers, all while trying to compete uh, for division titles and more like that is that that's the difficult task that faces the organization now. Yeah, and a big part of that is, as you mentioned, this is not an organization that's ever going to rank in the top five or 10 in payroll, but right now they're 24th. Uh, according to COTS baseball contracts, they're currently at $86.9 million, under $100 million. And on the one hand, they have all these prospects to trade, but in order to trade them for big leaguers, you have to be willing to take salary back on. And it's unclear if they'll be able to. Is that going to limit the ceiling of, of how far this team can go? I don't think so. I mean, like I know that, at some level, obviously the answer is yes, right? Because if you if you just won't pay it, that that is a problem. But like, they did get, um, you know, ownership group did add uh, David Blitzer, and like I don't know the full parameters of that, but like that theoretically is some cash infusion, and they've been running low payrolls for a couple of years, but they've always said that when the time's right, like they'll they'll spend so i think like obviously you can't come to them and say well we want to sign shohei otani uh this <laughs> this offseason like that's not going to work but like there should be ways to to add payroll to get it back to levels it was just a few years ago they're like redesigning or refurbishing i don't know the right the right word for what they're doing to progressive field or what they're about to do and i, I know some of that is done with like trying like the way anyone is right now if you touch your arena or stadium like you're doing it to increase revenues right so like they're they're trying to find more ways to to work through some of this stuff so i i I feel like they probably should be able to but there are also difficult market forces out there um not you know including what is just kind of the general unease of what is happening with like valley sports right now i guess but uh, I, I would expect that when the time comes, if the front office takes reasonable uh, potential ways to, to increase uh, payroll to ownership, that they would probably be able to, to pull that off. Yeah, I mean, that that's going to be key. I've written about it a lot. Um, since really the last 30 years, only one team that wasn't in the top half of payroll has gone to win a world series. And, you know, to accumulate both the stars and depth, you need to win a world series costs money. There's no way around it. And you don't have to be number one, two or three, but you need to be somewhere in the top half, even if that's number 14, 15. And and that is a range the guardians in theory should be able to get to. So we'll see if they uh, pull the trigger and make it happen and see if they can win a, win a world series and bring one back to Cleveland. Teddy, Thank you so much for joining me. We appreciate your insight as always. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. All right, everyone. That'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Teddy Cahill, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.